Greetings, listeners. It is I, TV Spitzer in Farmer Days, here once again to talk to you about the Cthulhu mythos, its books, its monsters, its unfortunate human casualties, its timeline in general, and even its tangential bits, like the dreamlands or things of a weird nature that are Lovecraftian leaning. Once more we head into those dark woods, further feeling those malevolent forces upon us. Once again we walk down the lightless stone staircase in the middle of nowhere. Hey everyone, it's me, TV. Just reminding you, we have t-shirts in the shop. Just go to pgttcm.com, check out all of our cool t-shirts and stickers. Heck, we even got some shelf curtains in there. Keep clean, look cool, have cool stickers to put on stuff. Recording by Scott Reynolds, www.scottreynoldsvoice.com. Astounding Stories 7, July 1930, by Captain S.P. Meek, Beyond the Heaviside Lair. He turned to his telephone and communicated the momentous news to the earth and then rejoined me at the window. For ten minutes we watched, and a slight diminution of the black cloud became apparent. "'They're through the lair!' exclaimed Carpenter. "'Now watch, and you'll see something. I'm going to start spreading the beam.' He turned to his telephone, and presently the beam began to widen and spread around us. As it did so, the dark cloud became more dense than it had been before. The earth below us was hidden, and we could see the red only as a dim murky glow through the falling soot. Carpenter inquired of the laboratory and found that we were completely invisible to the ground, half the heavens being hidden by the black pall. For an hour, the beam worked its way toward us. The hole is about 400 yards in diameter right now, said Carpenter as he turned from the telephone. I've told them to stop the movement of the reflectors, and as soon as the air clears a little, we'll start through. It took another hour for the soot to clear enough that we could plainly detect the ring of red light before us. Carpenter gave some orders to the ground, and a gap thirty yards wide opened in the wall before us. Toward this gap the flyer moved slowly under the side thrust of the diverted motor discharge. The temperature rose rapidly as we neared the wall of red light before us. Nearer we drew until the light was on both sides of us. Another few feet and the flyer shot forward with a jerk that threw me sprawling on the floor. Carpenter fell too, but he maintained his hold on the controls and tore at them desperately to check us. I scrambled to my feet and watched. The red wall was alarmingly close. Nearer we drove, and then came another jerk, which threw me sprawling again. The wall retreated. In another moment we were standing still, with the red all around us at a distance of about two hundred yards. We had a narrow escape from being cremated said Carpenter, with a shaky laugh. I knew that our speed would increase as soon as we got clear of the lair, but it caught me by surprise just the same. I had no idea how great the holding effect of the stuff was. Well, First Mortgage, the road to space is open for us. May I invite you to be my guest on a little weekend jaunt to the moon? No thanks, Jim, I said with a wry smile. I think a trip to the edge of the lair will quite satisfy me. Quitter, he laughed. Say goodbye to familiar things. Here we go. He turned to the controls of the flyer, and presently we were moving again, this time directly away from the earth. There was no jerk at starting this time, merely a feeling as though the floor were pressing against my feet. 
a great deal like the feeling a person gets when they rise rapidly in an express elevator. The indicator showed that we were traveling only 60 miles an hour. For half an hour we continued monotonously on our way with nothing to divert us. Carpenter yawned. Now that it's all over I feel let down and sleepy, he announced. We are well beyond the point to which Hadley penetrated, and so far we have met with no resistance. We are probably nearly at the outer edge of the lair. I think I'll shoot up a few miles more and then call it a day and go home. We are about eighty miles from the earth now. I looked down but could see nothing below us but the dense cloud of black soot resulting from the destruction of the heavyside lair. Like Carpenter, I felt sleepy, and I suppressed a yawn as I turned again to the window. Look here, Jim! I cried suddenly. What's that? He moved in a leisurely manner to my side and looked out. As he did so, I felt his hand tighten on my shoulder with a desperate grip. Down the wall of red which surrounded us was coming an object of some kind. The thing was fully seventy-five yards long and half as wide as its main portion, while long, irregular streams extended for a hundred yards on each side of it. There seemed to be dozens of them. "'What is it, Jim?' I asked in a voice which sounded high and unnatural to me. "'I don't know,' he muttered, half to me and half to himself. "'Good Lord, there's another of them!' He pointed. Not far from the first of the things came another, even larger than the first. They were moving sluggishly along the red light, seeming to flow rather than to crawl. I had a horrible feeling that they were alive and malignant. Carpenter stepped back to the controls of the flyer and stopped our movement. We hung in space watching them. The things were almost level with us, but their sluggish movement was downward towards the earth. In color, they were brilliant crimson, deepening into purple near the center. Just as the first of them came opposite us, it paused, and slowly a portion of the mass extended itself from the main bulk, and then, like doors opening, Four huge eyes, each of them twenty feet in diameter, opened and stared at us. It's alive, Jim! I quavered. I hardly knew my own voice as I spoke. Jim stepped back from the controls with a white face and slowly we moved closer to the mass. As we approached, I thought that I could detect a fleeting passage of expression in those huge eyes. Then they disappeared and only a huge crimson and purple blob lay before us. Jim moved the controls again and the flyer came to a stop. Two long streamers moved out from the mass. Suddenly there was a jerk to the ship which threw us both to the floor. It started upward at express train speed. Jim staggered to his feet, grasped the controls, and started all four bow motors at full capacity. But even this enormous force had not the slightest effect in diminishing our speed. Well, the thing's got us, whatever it is, said Jim as he pulled his controls to neutral, shutting off all power. Now that the danger had assumed a tangible form, he appeared as cool and collected as ever. To my surprise, I found that I had recovered control of my muscle and of my voice. I became aware that the shoulder which Jim had gripped was aching badly, and I rubbed it absently. "'What is it, Jim?' I asked for a third time. "'I don't know,' he replied. "'It is some horrible inhabitant of space, something unknown to us on Earth.' From its appearance and actions, I think it must be a huge single-celled animal of the type of the earthly amoeba. If an amoeba is that large here, what must an elephant look like? However, I expect that we'll learn more about the matter later, because it's taking us with it, wherever it's going. Suddenly the flyer became dark inside. 
I looked at the nearest window, but I could not even detect its outline. I reached for the light switch, but a sudden change in direction threw me against the wall. There was an instant of intense heat in the flyer. We have passed the heaviside lair, said Jim. The brute has changed direction, and we felt that heat when he took us through the infrared wall. I reached again for the light switch, but before I could find it, our motion ceased, and an instant later, the flyer was filled with glaring sunlight. We both turned to the window. We lay on a glistening plain of bluish hue which stretched without a break as far as we could see. Not a thing broke the monotony of our vision. We turned to the opposite window. How can I describe the sight which met our horrified gaze? On the plain before us lay a huge purple monstrosity of gargantuan dimensions. The thing was a shapeless mass, only the four huge eyes standing out regarding us balefully. The mass was continually changing its outline and, as we watched, a long streamer extended itself from the body toward us. Over and around the flyer the feeler went, while green and red colors played over first one and then another of the huge eyes before us. The feeler wrapped itself around the flyer and we were lifted into the air toward those horrible eyes. We had almost reached them when the thing dropped us. We fell to the plane with a crash. We staggered to our feet again and looked out. Our captor was battling for its life. Its attacker was a smaller thing of a brilliant green hue, striped and mottled with blue and yellow. While our captor was almost formless, the newcomer had a very definite shape. It resembled a cross between a bird and a lizard, its shape resembling a bird, as did tiny rudimentary wings and a long beak, while the scaly covering and the fact that it had four legs instead of two bore out the idea that it might be a lizard. Its huge bird-like beak was armed with three rows of long, sharp teeth with which it was tearing at our captor. The purple amoeba was holding its assailant with a dozen of its thrown-out feelers which were wrapped around the body and legs of the green horror. The whole battle was conducted in absolute silence. Now's our chance, Jim. Get away from here while that dragon has the amoeba busy. He jumped to the control levers of the flyer and pulled the starting switch well forward. The shock of the sudden start hurled me to the floor, but from where I fell, I was able to watch the battle on the plain below us. It raged with uninterrupted fury, and I felt certain of our escape when, with the shock that hurled both me and Jim to the ceiling, the flyer stopped. We fell back to the floor, and I reflected that it was well for us that the interior of the flyer was so well padded. Had it not been, our bones would have been broken a dozen times by the shocks to which we had been subjected. What now? I asked as I painfully struggled to my feet. Another of those purple amoebas, replied Jim, from the vantage point of a window. He's looking us over, as if he were trying to decide whether we are edible or not. I joined him at the window. The thing which had us was a replica of the monster we had left below us engaged in battle with the green dragon which had attacked it. The same indefinite and ever-changing outline was evident, as well as the four huge eyes. The thing regarded us for a moment and slowly moved us up against its bulk until we touched it. Deeper and deeper into the mass of the body we penetrated until we were in a deep cavern with the light coming to us only from the entrance. I watched the entrance and horror possessed my soul. The hole's closing. Jim, I gasped. The thing is swallowing us. I expected that, he replied grimly. The amoeba has no mouth, you know. Nourishment is passed into the body through the skin, which closes behind it. We are a modern version of Jonah and the Whale, First Mortgage. Well, Jonah got out, I ventured. We'll try to, he replied. 
When that critter swallowed us, he got something that will prove pretty indigestible. Let's try to give him a stomach ache. I don't suppose that a machine gun will affect him, but we'll try it. I didn't know that you had any guns on board. Oh yes, I've got two machine guns. We'll turn one of them loose, but I don't expect much effect from it. He moved over to one of the guns and threw off the cover which had hidden it from my gaze. He fed in a belt of ammunition and pulled his trigger. For half a minute he held it down, and 250 caliber 30 bullets tore their way into space. There was no evidence of movement on the part of our host. Just as I thought, remarked Jim as he threw aside the empty belt and covered the gun again. The thing has no nervous organization to speak of, and probably never felt that. We'll have to rig up a disintegrating ray for him. What? I gasped. A disintegrating ray, he replied. Oh yes, I know how to make the fabulous death ray that you journalists are always raving about. I have never announced my discovery, for war is horrible enough without it. But I have generated it and used it in my work a number of times. Did it ever occur to you that the rocket motor is built on a disintegrating ray principle? Of course it is, Jim. I never thought of it in that light before, but it must be. How can you use it? The discharge from the motors is a harmless stream of energy particles. Instead of turning the ray into powdered aluminum and breaking it down, what is to prevent me from turning it against the body of our captor and blasting my way out? I don't know. Well, nothing is. I'll have to modify one of the motors a little, but it's not a hard job. Get some wrenches from the toolbox and we'll start. An hour of hard work enabled us to disconnect one of the reverse bow motors and after the modifications Jim had mentioned, turn the ray out through the port through which the products of disintegration were meant to go. When we had bolted it in place with an improvised coupling, Jim opened the vitrioline screen which held in our air and turned to his control board. Here goes, he said. He pulled the lever to full power, and with a roar which almost deafened us in the small flyer, the ray leaped out to do its deadly work. I watched through a port beside the motor. There was a flash of intense light for an instant, and then the motor died away in silence. A path to freedom lay open before us. Jim started one of the stern motors, and slowly we forced our way through the hole torn in the living mass. When we were almost at the surface, he threw in full power, and we shot free from the amoeba and into the open. Again we were stopped in mid-air and drawn back toward the huge bulk. The eyes looked at us and we were turned around. As the ray swung into a position to point directly toward one of the eyes, Jim pulled the controlling lever. With a flash of light which ensued, the eye and a portion of the surrounding tissue disappeared. The amoeba writhed and changed shape rapidly, while flashes of brilliant crimson played over the remaining eyes. Again the ray was brought into play and another of the eyes disappeared. This was evidently enough for our captor, for it suddenly released us and instantly we started to fall. Jim caught the control levers and turned on our power in time to halt us only a few feet above the plane toward which we were falling. We were close to the point whence we had started up and we could see that the battle below us was still raging. The green dragon was partially engulfed by the amoeba, but it still relentlessly tore off huge chunks and devoured them. The amoeba was greatly reduced in bulk, but it still fought gamely. Even as we approached, the dragon was evidently satiated, for it slowly withdrew from the purple bulk and back away. Long feelers shot out from the amoeba's bulk toward the dragon, but they were bitten off before they could grasp their prey. Let's get away from here, Jim, I cried, but I spoke too late. Even as the words left my mouth, the green dragon saw us and raised itself in the air, and with gaping jaws launched itself at us. 
It took Jim only a moment to shoot the flyer up into space and the charge passed harmlessly beneath us. The dragon checked its headway and turned again toward us. Use the machine gun, Pete, cried Jim. I've got to run the ship. I threw the cover off the gun and fed in a fresh belt of ammunition. As the green monster dashed towards us, I hastily aligned the gun and pulled the trigger. My aim was good and at least 50 of the bullets plowed through the approaching bolt before Jim dropped the ship and allowed it to pass above us. Again the dragon turned and charged and again I met it with a hail of bullets. They had no apparent effect and Jim dropped the ship again and let the huge bulk shoot by above us. Twice more the dragon rushed but the last rush was less violent than had been the first three. The bullets are affecting him Pete, cried Jim as he shot the flyer upward. Give him another dose. I hastily fed in another belt, but it was not needed. The dragon rushed the fifth time, but before it reached us its velocity fell off and it passed harmlessly below us and fell on a long curve to the plain below. It fell near the purple amoeba which it had battled and a long feeler shot out and grasped it. Straight into the purple mass it was drawn and vanished into the huge bulk. Jim started one of the stern motors. In a few seconds we were far from the scene. Have you any idea of which direction to go? He asked. I shook my head. Have you a radio beacon? I asked. He withered me with a glance. We're beyond the heaviside layer, he reminded me. For a moment I was stunned. We can't be very far from the hole, he said consolingly as he fumbled with the controls. But before we try to find it, we had better disconnect one of the stern motors and rig it as a disintegrating ray so that we will have one bearing in each direction. We may meet more denizens of space who like our looks, and we haven't much ammunition left. We landed on the plane and in an hour had a second disintegrating ray ready for action. Thus armed, we rose from the blue plane and started at random on our way. For ten minutes we went forward. Then Jim stopped the flyer and turned back. We had gone only a short distance when I called to him to stop. What is it? he demanded as he brought the flyer to a standstill. There's another creature ahead of us, I replied. A red one. Red? he asked excitedly as he joined me. About a mile ahead of us, a huge mass hung in the air. It resembled the amoeba which attacked us, except that the newcomer was red. As we watched, it moved toward us. As it did so, its color changed to purple. Hurrah! cried Jim. Don't you remember, Pete, that the one which captured us and took us out of the hole was red while in the hole and then turned purple? That thing just came out of the hole. Then why can't we see the red beam? I demanded. Because there's no air or anything to reflect it, he replied. We can't see it until we are right in it. I devoutly hoped that he was right as he headed the ship toward the waiting monster. As we approached, the amoeba came rapidly to meet us and a long feeler shot out. As it did so, there was a flash of intense light ahead of us as Jim turned loose the ray and the feeler disappeared. Another and another met the same fate. Then Jim rotated the ship slightly and let out the full force of the ray toward the monster. A huge hole was torn in it, and as we approached with our ray blazing, the amoeba slowly retreated and our path was open before us. Again there was an instant of intense heat as we passed through the red wall, and we were again in the hole which Jim's lamps had blasted through the lair. Below us still lay the fog which had obscured the earth when we had started on our upward trip. Down toward the distant earth we dropped. We had gone about thirty miles before we saw on the side of the hole one of the huge amoeba which were so thick above. We might stop and pick that fellow off, said Jim, but on the whole I think we'll experiment with him. He drove the ship near and turned it on its axis, holding it in position by one of the auxiliary discharges. 
A flash came from our forward ray and a portion of the amoeba disappeared. A long arm moved out toward us, but it moved slowly and sluggishly instead of with the lightning-like swiftness which had characterized the movements of the others. Jimmy easily eluded it and dropped the ship a few yards. The creature pursued it, but it moved slowly. For a mile we kept our distance ahead of it, but we had to constantly decrease our speed to keep from leaving it behind. Soon we were almost at a standstill, and Jim reversed our direction and drew nearer. A feeler came slowly and feebly out a few feet toward us, and then stopped. We dropped the ship a few feet, but the amoeba did not follow. Jim glanced at the altimeter. Just as I thought, he exclaimed. We are about 45 miles above the earth, and already the air is so dense that the thing cannot move lower. They are fashioned for existence in the regions of space, and even in the most rarefied air, they are helpless. There is no chance of one ever reaching the surface of the earth without years of gradual acclimation, and even if it did, it would be practically immobile. In a few years, the lair will flow enough to plug the hole I have made, but even so, I'll build a couple of space flyers equipped with disintegrating rays as soon as we get down and station them alongside the hole to wipe out any of that space vermin which tries to come through. Let's go home. We've put in a good day's work. Hundreds of the purple amoeba have been destroyed by the guarding ships during the past five years. The hole is filling in as Jim predicted, and in another ten years the earth will be as securely walled in as it ever was. But in the meantime, no one knows what unrevealed horrors space holds, and the world will never rest entirely easy until the slow process of time again heals the broken protective layer. End of section two. Recorded by Scott Reynolds. www.scottreynoldsvoice.com Hi, I'm Rob Whiten from the Innsmouth Book Club. Join me and my fellow guide John Chadwick as we take you on a fortnightly tour of Innsmouth. We visit places such as the Picture House, the Library and Innsmouth Museum to discuss all aspects of weird fiction, whether it be book, film, music, TV or art. As well as that, we stop over at the Gilman House to have a chat with a resident guest. That includes authors, artists, musicians, in fact, Lovecraftian creatives of all types. You can find our free shows on Patreon, and there you can also sign up as a patron, which brings you bonus content, plus a monthly PDF copy of Innsmouth News, which features articles, author spotlights, all the latest news and reviews, and more. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash Innsmouth BC. We hope to see you soon because remember, Innsmouth isn't just a place, it's a state of mind. Thank you once again for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. You can help show your support by going to the show notes and following any of the links that'll tell you how to support the show, how to support our guests, and thank you to all of our guests who you can find in the show notes. Rate, review, subscribe, and remember, patrons get priority access to asking us questions, suggesting topics, even, I don't know... Uh, submitting stuff. Actually, 
you don't have to be a patron to submit anything. That's how Dave got on the show, and that's how you can get on the show, too. It's the people's guide to the Cthulhu mythos. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Thank you for listening. Back to the show. Prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Here your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classics and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival, Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio. Oh, yeah.